Well, welcome to church this morning. My name is Jeremy West, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm doing local and global missions. That's what I do here at the church, and so it's great to be uh, with you. What a great morning, man. Already just great worship time and time to dedicate kids to the Lord uh, and pray for something on God's heart. It's good stuff. And we're going to continue this morning by jumping into the scriptures. So you need to get your Bible out or your phone or whatever you use. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the one in the chair uh, in front of you. Um, And if you don't own one, you can take that one home as our gift um, to you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22. And that will be on page 856 on the uh, seat Bible there. Um, this morning, we're going to continue in our series called Anchor of Hope from the Gospel of Luke. And it's going to be good, good stuff. Um, this, we, in this series, we've been discovering the many incredible ways that Jesus is uh, the anchor of hope in our life. And as it says in Hebrews, that uh, the hope that we have in Jesus is a steadfast and sure anchor for the soul. Isn't that good news? In the midst of a chaotic world, in the midst of, uh, you know, every time you turn on the news, there's something wrong and there's, you know, just issues in your own life, that we have an anchor of hope in Jesus, an anchor for our soul. And so that's good, good stuff. So open your Bible to Luke 22. We'll get there in a second. While you're doing that, uh, I want to share something that I believe we all have in common. We all have this in common, all right, whether you're old, young, whether you're an iPhone person or Android person, all right, you know, Christian, non-Christian, you know, boomer, millennial, Gen X, whatever other generation uh, is out there, white, black, Hispanic, uh, whether you like dogs or you're one of the other people. <laughs> just kidding, just listen up. We're going to have fun this morning, all right. We all have this in common, all right? Here's what we have in common is that we like food. Man, I got more amens on that point than I think on anything else is more. We like food. In fact, some of us would say we love food. Um, everyone likes food. Now, notice I didn't say that we all like a certain type of food. I'm not trying to start a fight this morning. I mean, I realize we have some, some meat eaters in the house, you know, and, and we're praying for you. Uh, and some vegans, too, and, and we're, we're praying for you. We're really praying. I'm just kidding. You might like Tex-Mex or, you know, Italian, whatever your, your thing is, Mediterranean. My favorite is Thai food. I like Thai food. And a great Thai place right by my house in Garland. Whatever style suits you, is, that's cool. That's all great. The point is we like food. And because we like food, and we have that in common, something else we have in common is that a lot of our life happens around meals. A lot of our life happens around a meal. In fact, I'm going to, I don't really feel like I'm going out on a limb to say this, that some of your most important moments of your life, conversations you've had, decisions you've made, celebrations, relationships you've formed have happened around a meal. Meals help us celebrate. They help us remember. They help us build friendship. You know, personally, I've had some significant moments in my life that happened around a meal. Uh, the first one that I want to share is a highlight of my ninth birthday party. It was CC's Pizza. <laughs> we had to eat CC's Pizza with my friends and play NBA Jam in the living room. 
You know, we never got to eat in the living room. We had to stay on the tile, but we got to eat in the living room. CC's Pizza, NBA Jam, ninth birthday party. Uh, Fast forward many years, I asked my father-in-law if I could marry his daughter at a meal. Not we got married at a meal, but we were sitting down at a meal when I asked him on the border. Still remember it. Months later, I married my now wife, Carol Lee, during a picnic meal. Uh, I was offered my first job after college at a meal. The pastor at my church reached out to me and said, let's meet at Arby's. So that's where I got hired. <laughs> Arby's. They have the meats. All right. Every year, my wife and I, we celebrate our anniversary. And part of that is we have a meal. And at that meal, we sit down and we talk and we remember the things that God has done in our life. And we go on and on. We talk about holidays. We talk about birthdays. We talk about weddings. We talk about even some of the difficult times in life, like funerals and things like that. We have meal and we remember and we celebrate. And I think I want to just challenge you. Think of all the ways that meals uh, have been involved in the important moments of your life. You know, I believe that God has even created that in the fabric of, of human nature that we remember and we celebrate around meals because meals help us remember. They help us celebrate. They help us build friendships. You know, and I, I think, I mean, I like steak is good, you know. And if, if I was going to have steak tonight, which Lord willing, I will, but I would look forward to that. But more than that, I look forward to the company that I get to have the steak with and, I, and the conversations that are going to happen and maybe what that meal represents in my life. And those things become written on our hearts. So this morning what we're going to do, Luke 22, we're going to pull up our chair to the table of a meal. All right? Where Jesus is having a meal with his disciples, some of his early followers. And we're going to observe, listen to this conversation. Because this meal has radical implications for your life. Radical implications for your life. So Luke 22, starting in verse 14. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. All right, good. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Isn't that? I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover, this meal with you before I suffer. That's kind of an incredible statement. What, what is going on? Like, what does he mean by that? Maybe Jesus had, like, the inside scoop on what was on the menu. You know, they had a special seat. He's, you know, we're having lamb chop tonight. Maybe he's looking forward to the food. What, what is he looking forward to? And what does it have to do with suffering? He's talking about, I'm looking forward to this meal. I'm really desiring to eat this meal before I suffer. And I'm like, okay, what, 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 what are you talking about? Well, Jesus maybe is talking about food because maybe they're going to have some great food. But what he's really talking about and what he's really eagerly desiring through this meal is to bring his disciples into a reality of what this meal was going to signify, which we'll see in the following verses. So we'll keep reading. Verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it, the meal, again until it, the meal, that's what it is in this sentence, the meal finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. He's saying that this meal has some bigger meaning, some fulfillment. Verse 17, after taking the cup, 
He gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And again, he's pointing the future fulfillment. What is this meal symbolizing? In verse 19, we begin to get the answer. Look. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Wow. So now we begin to see what this meal is about. This meal is signifying something, something powerful, something that Jesus is eagerly desiring for his disciples and desiring for us to see this morning, that the elements of this meal, the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup of the wine, symbolize and point to and are going to help millions of followers of Jesus for centuries to remember the greatest act of love that's ever been done in human history, which was about to take place a few hours later. This greatest act of love when Jesus, a few hours later, his body was going to be brutally broken on the cross. And his blood was going to be poured out to death on the cross as he chose to lay down his life as the perfect, sinless, atoning sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. And that is why if you've been around church at all in your life, you've noticed that Christians and and followers of Jesus, disciples across the world in every nation throughout human history have gathered to remember what Jesus has done for us through a meal. The church that I grew up in, we called it the Lord's Supper. It's been called the communion, the Eucharist. Whether you receive this meal in a large cathedral with like masses of people and long lines, or whether it's around a kitchen table with close friends, the same elements, the bread, the cup, help us. They're given to us to help us remember Jesus and all that he's done for us. I was listening to a song this week by one of my favorite artists, Matt Redman. Matt Redman wrote a song, it's called Remembrance. And it's a song about communion. And I've been listening to it all week, and I love the chorus. I want to just quote the lyrics to you from the chorus. It says this, we remember you. And remembrance leads us to worship. And as we worship you, our worship leads to communion. We respond to your invitation to remember you. And in that way, Communion draws us deeper into the depths of God's great love. And that's why in the midst of chaos, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of our own brokenness and our own weakness and our own failures, when we look out and so much seems to be wrong with the world, that we have an eternal and unshakable and immovable anchor of hope. And his name is Jesus. And this meal helps us to remember that. But this story that we're reading and our own story, in our stories, the plot thickens. And that's where you can go, ooh. 
All right, the plot thickens because as much as Jesus eagerly desires to have this meal with us and we're invited and he's communicating and helping us remember something that we all face to very serious temptations that are trying to keep us at a distance from communion, from fellowship, and from receiving what Jesus has for us. And so we're going to keep reading because the conversation that takes place at this meal highlights the same temptations that you and I are going to face. All right, so we're going to skip ahead a few verses. Verse 24 in Luke 22. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. So, here's what's happening. Literally with bread still in their teeth. And, and the cup, the wine, still in their, in their mouth. They begin to argue about who's the greatest. The irony, okay? The irony. They, they begin to, to get derailed by their own pride, their own religious performance, their own comparison with one another, at the table. Now, I realize, uh, yeah, I, I realize pride and comparison and envy and, you know, putting, you know, others down and selfish ambition, those are more first century temptations. They didn't have insta envy. <laughs> it's getting real this morning, isn't it? All right, but in case, in case you've ever faced that or you might, we're going to keep reading, all right? Jesus said to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. So he's just talking about, this is how the culture works right now, is it? you're trying to be great. Uh, verse 26, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. I want to be very clear. Jesus is absolutely teaching us that we are called to be servants, that we are called to lay down our life for one another, that we are called to serve, that we're called to give of ourselves to serve other people. That is 100% true, and we need to do that. And not miss that. But he's also saying something deeper. He's pointing to something deeper that we desperately need to see, desperately need to catch this morning. Verse 27, for who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. It's kind of like, oh, Jesus, okay. The greatest is the one who's at the table, but, but you're saying it's the serve, but at the table. What are, you, <laughs> what are we saying? Let me ask some clarifying questions for you, and you can respond to me. This is group participation. Who is the greatest one at the table? Jesus. All right, we can say it confidently. Jesus, I mean, you know, Matthew's pretty cool, and John's awesome, and, you know, Nic uh, Thaddeus, Nicodemus wasn't there. Uh, you know, they're great guys. Let's just agree. Jesus is the greatest one at the table. I, it, everyone wants to sit next to Jesus, right? Everyone's calling shotgun next to Jesus. Like, I want to be next to Jesus. He's the greatest. Who is the one who is serving? Jesus, yes. Who are the ones sitting at the table? The disciples. What does this mean? Well, what it means, we're about to see. 
And it's actually not recorded in Luke, but it was recorded by John. And from other accounts of the Gospels, we know that John was sitting right to the left of Jesus. And he was watching and experiencing all of it. And he, in John 13, he, he writes this. So this is like seamless transition. Same scenario, just a different perspective. So uh, Luke says, I'm among you as one who serves. That's what Jesus said. John 13, 3, the next thing that happens, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter. Simon Peter was the kind of the leader of the disciples, the apostles. And Simon Peter kind of bows up a little bit. And he said to, to, to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing. But later, you will understand. And Jesus is foot washing here is also pointing to something else. Just like this meal was pointing to something else, this foot washing is brought into the meal and it is pointing to something else. Peter, literally with bread still in his teeth and wine in his mouth, he tells Jesus, no, (laughs) you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, You have no part with me. Unless I wash you, there is no fellowship. Unless I wash you, you cannot relate with me. There is no part with me. And this is one of the major points that Jesus is earnestly trying to make. Why he was earnestly desiring. It wasn't the lamb chops It wasn't the the food they were going to eat. He's desiring to communicate something, and this is what he's desiring to communicate through this meal. He's saying to his disciples, his followers, then and now to us in this room, he's saying loud and clear, let me serve you. Let me serve you. That does not sound very American. Jesus, serve? Wait, we're serving him. He's saying, stop, let me serve you. Let me wash you. Let me cleanse you. Let me give my life for you. Please just sit and receive. But how easily in our pride we hold him at a distance. Just like Peter. No, Lord. I'm a pretty good person. Let me wash myself. I'll fix myself. I'll take care. I know that I'm the little dirty. I'll get it together. I'll get, just let me get it together and then we can, and then we'll move forward. And really maybe just trying to hide it. Friends, that's called pride. And it will destroy you and it will keep you from the abundant life that God has for you. Because you cannot cleanse yourself. You cannot cleanse yourself. Only Jesus can do that. And I want to challenge us. This is, I'm going to make a very strong statement. 
that maybe the chokehold that lust or pornography or anger or impatience or whatever other sin we're dealing with or struggling with, the chokehold it has on our life that we may feel like it has on our life is not because you are not serving Jesus good enough. But I would submit to you that it might be because you might not be allowing him to serve you like he eagerly desires to do. Because Jesus came to serve our desperate need for cleansing. Jesus came to serve our desperate need for cleansing. Say it again. Jesus came to serve our desperate need for cleansing. Take a picture of it up on the screen. He came to serve our desperate need for cleansing. But practically, how do we respond? How do we lean into this? What, what, okay, Jesus, yes, I need cleansing. Practically, one of the ways that we come and we sit down at the table and we let Jesus do what he came to do, cleansing us of our sin is through confessing our sin and confessing our need for him. Not, no, 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 Lord, you, you know, but saying, yes, Lord, you're right. I need you. I need you. Let Cleanse me. And the Apostle John, again, John was sitting right on the left of Jesus watching all of this, and he saw it take place. And he knew that it was true, and he experienced that it was true, and he touched, and he tasted, and he saw, and he experienced. And later in his life, many years later, he writes this. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship. We have part with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, no, I'm good, I can fix myself, God, I'm gonna take care of it, I'm gonna clean it up, it's gonna be okay, I'm gonna just let just give me some time. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, it's not true. <laughs> it's not a true way of thinking. Verse nine, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Several years ago, I was serving as a college pastor at a church in Abilene where I went to school and I had to see this truth play out firsthand uh, before my very eyes. There was a group, a section is what we call them, it was a group of life groups, about 40 people. Um, they had some great leaders and just great potential and I was really excited to just see what God was doing, but they just were hitting a wall. As a community, they were hitting a wall. And there was, there was anxiety, there was strife, there was angst. There was, you know, just you can kind of feel it, the tension uh, with them. And many of them struggling. And it was just not working out. It wasn't community like God had intended. And not surprisingly, the ministry that they were all called to serving together was just not bearing much fruit at the time. But it all changed in a moment. It changed in a moment. I was talking to one of the guys earlier who's a student in that group. It changed in a moment when at one of the gatherings, about 40 of them there, the leader stood up, just spontaneously, voluntarily stood up, named what he, he, he just sensed, and then just started confessing his sin. 
guys, I, I just need to confess, I've walked in pride, in selfishness, judgment, performance. I've tried to appear better than I was, and I'm weak, and I'm struggling in these areas, etc., etc. He confessed and sat down. An awkward silence, you know, through the room. What just happened? And then another leader stood up and did the same thing. And then another, and another, and another. People began to weep, to reconcile. Some began having radical encounter with the Holy Spirit. Hours later, I was moving in the room. Everyone had voluntarily confessed sin and, and said, I need God, and I've been performing, and I've been, you know, holy majesty. That all went through. Powerful moment. And they began to experience cleansing. They began to experience healing and empowering from Jesus and, and fellowship. It was unreal. And what resulted in the, the days following that was awesome. Lives were, I mean, they started bearing fruit. Lives were changed. Even like within a week, they started seeing some miracles happen. I'm like legit miracles, people being healed, and different things in their community. It was incredible. And it started with one young man realizing his need for Jesus, realizing that he needed to stop striving, stop trying to fix himself and fix other people, and needed to be served by Jesus if he was ever going to be effective in serving Jesus. Jesus came to serve our desperate need for cleansing. So don't let pride keep you from letting him serve you. However, pride's not the only temptation that seeks to keep us distant. It's not. The only temptation, you know, with the bread still in hand, the taste still in their mouth, Jesus addresses another one that we'll all face and that we have faced. Verse 31, we'll read on. Simon, Simon, he says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Essentially, Simon, Satan has come and he wants to take you out. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Simon replied, Lord, I'm ready. I'm, I'm willing to go to prison and death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. I mean, Peter has just experienced Jesus washing his feet, being cleansed. He's now... Like, I have part with Jesus. And he's fired up and he's experiencing the goodness of God. And, and what Jesus is saying, he's not fully understanding, but he's pumped. It was a great time. I'm ready for the week, man. Let's go. Let's do this. I'm excited. I'm, I'm fired up. I'm heading into my week with some new fire. I am not going to deny Jesus. No, I'm not going to look at that image. I'm not going to blow up at that person. I'm not going to be impatient and seek my own agenda. I'm ready. I've been cleansed. I've had an encounter. I'm ready to go. It's going to be different. Jesus, I'm ready. It feels so good. Let's go. And yet Jesus, at that moment, knows that there's an enemy. He knows that there's an enemy that's going to go after Peter. And the same enemy is going to go after you and go after me and has. 
But the enemy that he's speaking of is not what you think. It's not Satan, the devil. Yeah, the devil's the enemy, and he's trying to tempt and trying to do, you know, some things. But he can't keep you from, uh, this enemy can keep you from God at a distance. The enemy that we're talking about is shame. Shame is the flip side of the coin that, like pride, shame keeps you at a distance from God. Keeps you at a distance, keeps you from communion. And so while they're here still at this meal, this meal that's going to be instituted that forever is going to help us remember Jesus, he wants it to be one of the things he wants us to remember is shame has no place. Peter. I'm telling you right now, I'm addressing, with you, uh, addressing it with you head on right now that this meal is a reminder. The meal is a reminder that Jesus will always be, always be merciful, compassionate, and interceding advocate for the people of God. And because Jesus is our advocate, shame has no authority in your life. Because Jesus is our advocate, shame has no authority, it has no power in our life. This same John, who's right there at the left, Jesus watching it all, and he heard what Jesus told Peter, and then he saw what Peter did. And they're probably thinking, okay, well, let's see. Jesus said that it was going to be okay, but man, he really denied, I mean, like, three times, like, bad one of the times he even called curses down on himself. Like, this is bad. This is like that one of like no recovery. <laughs> like you did the thing that there's no recovery. We'll just see how this plays out. And John saw how it played out. And he saw exactly how it played out. That, that Jesus met Peter in John 21. The end. After the resurrection, he meets Peter. Peter, do you love me? Oh, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Jesus welcomes Peter. He receives him. He cleanses him again. And he empowers him. And later in life, John writes the same thing. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. See, that's the goal. That's the goal. It's not, well, when you sin. No, the goal is that you may not sin. God's going to work deeply in your life. And you can walk forward in newness of life and not sin. That is why we have the scriptures that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, you need to know this. You need to know this, that we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I know this. I saw it. I heard it. I was there. I was at the table when he said it. I was at the next encounter. I saw it. He's an advocate. He's not lying. He's true. You can come back. Shame has no place. And this is precisely why Jesus could tell Peter in advance, turn again. You're going to not turn again. You're going to turn again. I know. Your face not going to fail. You're going to come and you're going to turn again. And when you turn again, you're going to strengthen other people. 
There's something about a person believing the gospel and in the midst of their brokenness, running to Jesus instead of running from Jesus or running to other things. When they run to Jesus, it displays the glory of God and strengthens everyone around who's watching. And Peter did that. And this faith, this trust is a deep and enduring confidence in Jesus. It's a deep and enduring confidence in Jesus that if we sin, we are always invited back to the table. We're always invited back to the table of communion, for cleansing, for healing. Shame has no place at his table. And he wanted everyone to know it. This meal and what it stands for, it's a shame-free zone, church. Well, Jesus earnestly desired to communicate this through this meal, that he's a trustworthy advocate. And every time we take the, the elements, we remember, you're the advocate. I have no shame. Shame has no authority on me. And trust is practically how we come to the table of communion. Because trust and shame can't coexist in the kingdom. We come trusting and we leave shame. But if we hold on to shame, we don't come. And I love how the psalmist cries out, Psalm 25, 25 verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I lift up my soul, oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. That Satan who's trying to intimidate and trying to accuse, let him not exult over me. I'm trusting you. Indeed, none who wait for you shall ever be put to shame. And you know what? If you've ever prayed that prayer like the psalmist, and I hope you do, God answered it. He answered it. You know who gets put to shame? Colossians 2. Listen to this. God, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, Father God, disarmed the rulers and authorities the enemies that are trying to exalt over you in the spiritual realm, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, Jesus. So when the enemy, when shame, when the accuser, when Satan comes and tries to put shame on you, shame on you for doing what you did, or thinking what you thought. Jesus would have you remind him who is really under shame. Do it. Remind him who is really put to shame, and it's not you. If you trust him, it's not you. It's him. He's been put to open shame. This truth radically wrecked me. When I was a young man in my early 20s, I remember I was in the chokehold. It was a serious chokehold. Struggling with sin. Struggling with impure thoughts. Struggling with just the, the, the fear and the shame and the frustration and stuck in that place. 
And I remember us having this dialogue with God on the way to my U.S. history class. It's my first class of the day. I just like spent some time reading the Bible. I'm walking to class and I'm just, my mind is just racing and I'm frustrated. And it's like the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I keep doing those things. And I'm just like, Master, I'm, I'm a wretched person and I'm dialoguing with, with God in that moment. And I say, God, I'm a wretched person. And he spoke so clearly as I've ever heard God speak to my own heart. He said, and Jeremy, I'm going to be good to you anyways. And I began to weep. I mean, I'm climbing steps on the way to U.S. history class, and it just hits me, and I, like, stop. I begin to weep, and I begin to keep climbing steps, like Paul on the road to Damascus. I mean, just, you're going to be good to me anyways. Which means you're my advocate. It's not me against you. I've put my trust in you. And you're my advocate, and you're with me, and you're for me. And I'm, like, crying. I walk in my U.S. I'm, like, snot, just the whole thing. Guy next to me is like, man, you all right? <laughs> it's, like, 8 o'clock in the morning. I don't normally see people like that. I'm just like, God's going to be good to me. You know, he's my advocate. He's my advocate. Because Jesus is our advocate, shame is no authority in our life. And I'm, I'm going to, this is added to my notes. I was talking with a guy after the first service, and, and he was like, man, it's so good. I just need to receive that. And how do I practice that? But I was like, bro, so you, you just got to trust. You got to believe. And when I go to the Lord now, when I spend time reading my Bible or I'm coming to church, I'm like, ah, oh, I messed up this week. I did some things. I used to just like, okay, Lord, I'm really sorry for this and this and this. And I'm like, and like 30 minutes went by, and now I got to go. And I'm like, okay, all right. And God was just like, dude, I'm here. The blood of Jesus is covering you. You don't come to me because you're perfect. Even if you were perfect, you couldn't come. That's not what gives you access. That's not why we can fellowship. It's not because you're good. It's because I'm good. And so I remind myself over and over, God, I'm coming to you this morning or this evening or this afternoon in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the blood of your son, Jesus, thank you that I get to come boldly and with confidence before you to receive everything that you have for me. But the old is gone, the new's come. He's our advocate, and shame has no authority in our life. So, I think that would be a good time to take communion. Don't you agree? We could receive communion this morning. And, and often our, our message ends with some sort of application where we'd be like, okay, this week, you know, do this. And, and I hope, I hope you apply these things. You don't let pride keep you from the presence of God or, or shame or anything like that that you apply this week. But we get to apply it right now. We're just going to put it into practice right now with whatever you find yourself going through. And friend, I want to just ask, are you carrying pride this morning? Are you carrying pride? Are you coming into this place with the people of God this morning with the thoughts of, I need to fix myself. I need to get, I need to get my junk together. I need, to, I need to do better. I need to cleanse myself. I need to try harder. And you're trying to do it in your own strength. And this morning, Jesus is just saying, hey, let me serve you. Let me wash you. Let me cleanse you. Let me do for you what you could never in a million years do for yourself. I'm eager to do it. I'm earnestly desiring to share this meal with you and remind you 
of who I am. Or maybe you're covered in shame. And just those thoughts of, oh, he cleansed me and then I went out and I screwed up again. And you feel stuck in the chokehold. And the accuser is coming at you with shame like he came after Peter with shame. You need to know this morning, Jesus is interceding. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding. He's the advocate. And there's no shame. There's no, shame has no authority in your life. Don't be on the outskirts looking in. You're invited to the table. Jesus is earnestly desiring to share this with us. He wants to dine with you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to wash you. He wants to heal you. He wants to empower you. He wants to remind you and me that he is our anchor of hope. So will you come? I want to just invite everyone to stand and close your eyes. Realize this morning there may be some here who have never put their trust in Jesus. You've never confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord, and we want to give you that opportunity. Jesus is inviting you to come. So as we close, I'd like to ask everyone to please bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to speak to those in the room who have never trusted in Jesus, or maybe it's been a really long time, and you're coming back. This morning is a special moment. If you would like to take that radical step of faith, I want to invite you just to raise your hand right where you are and just as you are, indicating to God that you want him. We're not going to call you up here or put your name on the billboard or anything like that. It's between you and God. And now, everyone who has trusted Jesus and put their faith in him, let's pray together and you can repeat after me. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died on the cross to save me from my sin. I believe you rose from the dead victorious over evil. Please wash me and cleanse me of sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. As the band leads us in a song, you're invited to come and receive the bread and the cup and remember Jesus. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. Desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. And is written in Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What 
It's 